The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. This is the November episode. I'm Alex Spring and I write about arts and culture for The Guardian. I'm here with most of the Guardian Australia culture team who are Monica Tan, the Deputy Culture Editor for The Guardian Australia and our de facto music expert. Hi, Monica. Hi. Anna Madeline, who's a culture writer, researcher and our resident artist. Hi, Anna. Hi. And we're missing our culture editor, Nancy Groves, who's currently in sunny Tasmania, but we're joined by our first ever special guest, Adam Brereton, the editor of The Guardian's Opinion Pages, Comment is Free, and the most opinionated person in the office. Hi, Adam. G'day. That's um, that's actually quite a competitive title, too. Yeah, I'm not, that's not a title I've claimed for myself. I've been given that one. <laughs> so summer is finally here, which is wonderful, but there are lots of other things to do other than lie on the beach. So the four of us are going to talk about some of them today. Monica was recently seen chatting up celebrities on the Aria red carpet, so she's going to talk about her thoughts on music festivals. Our go-to artist, Anna, is trying to decide whether fashion is art or not. And I'm going to chat about the rise and rise of ideas festivals in Australia and are they making us smarter? So first up, it's summer, so it must be music festival season. Alt-J, FKA Twigs, John Hopkins, LaRue, Banks, Licky Lee are all heading to our shores for Falls, Stereosonic and Laneways. So while you're digging out your denim short shorts, flower crowns and wife beaters, we're going to talk about some of the people that we're looking forward to. Monica, who are you looking forward to? Um, I think FKA Twigs is going to be a big one for sure. Um, She's kind of got um, a sound that's unique and yet also um, making a big impact on pop stars today, I would say. Um, There's, you know, she's kind of in the same school as... Lord and Lionel Doré, kind of that really um, atmospheric electronica. Um, that's that's very new, but and also very now. I'm really interested to see her live as well um, to see if she'll, you know, if she has on stage charisma. And, uh, you know, I am definitely looking forward to kind of a summer of gigs in any case. There's, I've learned of a lot of new bands in this in my job and a lot of them I haven't had the chance to see um, play, perform yet. So I just know that it's going to be a summer where everyone's out doing gigs. So that's really exciting. Um, Dan Sultan, he's one I'm really looking forward to seeing live. But I have to confess, and it's not very cool to say this, but I don't really like music festivals that much. I don't really like going to them and I probably I probably won't go to any this summer. Really? You don't like music festivals? No. Um I love seeing the bands and often a festival lineup will tempt me because there are just so many amazing bands on the lineup. But um in the end I get turned off because of a long list of reasons. Um I do not like having to wait in lines all day. I don't like having to pay for overpriced drinks and food the sound quality is usually very bad I mean it's hard to really create a good sound environment um, in open spaces Um, doesn't matter how good your stereo system is I don't know I I don't like crowds you know you don't like crowds at all no I hate being shoved around and um yeah it's it's interesting there was a story recently about um this tv presenter who um Swedish tv presenter who 
experimented about whether seeing things is as a crowd or seeing things on your own, which is more enjoyable. And he actually managed to convince Bob Dylan to do a, a special one-on-one gig with him. <laughs> with just him. Yeah, him, with him. just him. And, it, you know, it's something that I've always thought about. Like, you know, anytime I'm in this big mosh pit at a festival and it's really noisy and everyone's elbowing you, I always think to myself, like, would I actually rather this if I was all on my own or... It, or would that feel strange? And actually, it's in some ways, it is more enjoyable to have a lot of people. What about the? It's the collective experience, though, of hearing the music and you're on a high with everybody else. Yeah, well, that's the question. I mean, is it about a pure enjoyment of the music? It can be this personal, private experience, or is it this idea that um, it's a shared pleasure and that heightens the pleasure when when you've got like a lot of people around you sharing it? I'm not sure. Often the people who are seeing the bands might not really be into the bands. Mm. They're there for the experience of getting wasted. And yeah, that's a big one for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you like music festivals, Anna, or not? Um, not really. I used to go to heaps around maybe 2006, 2007. I just went through a phase of going to everyone that I could, but that wore off pretty quickly. Um, now I think that uh, it's very commercial and people go in looking for a certain experience that they're after and a lot of the time that falls short. Um, I don't know. I think some of the, the kind of regional festivals, camping festivals are really taking off, like Golden Plains and Meredith, especially in Victoria, phenomenally popular. And that's partly, I think, because they actually do what they say on the tin. You know, you go down there to camp and, you know, you take all your own food and your own grog and all that kind of thing in. And, you know, there's no cops, There's or there are a few and they're pretty well behaved. The security's pretty good. You can generally go and do a bit of work. So I picked up rubbish or something for four hours in the blazing sun and then that paid for my whole ticket and was organised through a local footy club and you know so it's that kind of thing I think is really great and that's increasing in popularity as, at the same time as the big festivals like you say you know big day out just can't deliver on that like transcendental experience that people are really after mm-hmm. so you know you get people going along and instead of having a sick one they end up trapped in a cage all day drinking Carlton Mid or something like what could actually be worse than that <laughs> so um you know yeah that and I guess look the flip side of it is that that, um, you know, it's the niche is winning. And so I think you can still have that big experience at a huge festival, you know, by going to something like Soundwave maybe. Or, you know, I went to a good punk festival a few years ago, No Sleep Till, which was like, felt like the big day out, but was just a genre and people were having a great time. So maybe it's just the multi-purpose festival, you know, the kind of big day outs of the world that, or, you know, home bakes or whatever that that are going to go under while meanwhile everyone has a good time doing something else. I went to a festival called The Great Escape. You know, it was probably about 2008 or something. And it was held out in the Newington Armoury opposite a women's prison. It's called The Great Escape. And you could actually hear, like, all the security guards at the prison giving the prisoners, um, like, orders through the <laughs> loudspeaker and everything. Fitting. And we are just over the other side of the fence having, like, this massive music festival. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. That is surreal. Yeah. There's also a whole batch of new festivals coming through. I think, Anna, you were talking about Sugar Mountain, is that right? Yeah, Sugar Mountain's at um, Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne and it has a a much bigger engagement with artists, obviously, because it's at the art school, but they've got a whole art lineup as well as the music. Yeah, I think Um, there's a new trend towards that kind of thing, you know, over the last few years in Melbourne, festivals like White Night as well. Yeah, I I really want to go to that. Yeah, I went to the, the first one a couple of years ago and they, you know, they take that kind of festival experience but take it out of that kind of partly privatised space that you end up putting Big Day Out and stuff in and bring it out into into the commons. Yeah. And it kind of fragments a bit. You know, you had like the Cat Empire and a couple of other bands playing on the Federation Square steps. And then, you know, there were kind of like roving musical acts 
when previously in Melbourne you'd only ever had like Moomba and a couple of those like more family orientated festivals. So it's nice to see kind of adult music festivals taking over public space a little bit and saying like, hey, it's okay, we don't have to cage you, like you can just enjoy the city. You know? Exactly, that's yeah. the word, caged. Like I feel like I'm caged yeah. in at festivals and mm. that's what, you know, makes me frustrated because I, I don't like planning fun either and to be told it's like you're buying this ticket to have fun for 24 hours or 48 mm. hours in yeah, this yeah. space, you know, that just... It's like, almost like a formula for fun. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like you have to feel like having fun for the next 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've just paid $100 to have fun, so make sure you have fun. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. They're so expensive, right? Yeah, exactly. $100, you'd be lucky to get $100. I mean, and I, you know, I definitely have a lot of fun memories of music festivals when I was 18, 19. Um, I think that when you're at that age, you just want to experience everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you can't get enough of, of music and, and all those. And, you know, I always remember my, my brother coming back from his first big day out and he was just on this natural, I want to say natural high, <laughs> where he was just like, he was just like, <laughs> wow, like everyone just talks to you. And, um, it, you know, and he had seen all these bands that he loved. Um, you know, at that age, you don't have the same cynicism that maybe I do. Yeah. And, um and it becomes this kind of incredible experience where you see like maybe 10 of your favorite bands in one day. Yeah, I used to go to Groove in the Moo and um, One Night Stand a little bit as well. Mm. Like we drove out to Cowra or something one year to go to One Night Stand and it was just like country kids going absolutely nuts. So that was loads of fun. And they were good good bands as well. It was like Midnight Juggernauts when they would, when they'd just come out and they were still like really kicking on. Um, and Silverchair played. Like, it was the first time I'd ever seen Silverchair live. They were just one of these bands I missed. You know, they got up and Daniel Johns just really was playing in a showground or something out in this, you know. And across the road was the, like, local truck stop and the McDonald's or whatever. And he was just going for broke. So I think it's really good. I mean, you can't get too dark about it, especially um, especially just because, yeah, it's, like, the only opportunity a lot of people have to go and see headlining acts. You know, whether that be like Dizzy Rascal or Deftones or whoever's come out over the years. Even Metallica came out and toured those kinds of things. And a lot of those big stadium bands are just either they play, you know, Acer Arena or something like that. And the only way you can get in is by, you know, getting on the ballot or whatever. Or you go see them at the Big Day Out or something like that. And, you know, that's what we've got. So <laughs> you make the best of it, I guess. And, and you know, I I think another positive thing about music festivals is that you you, even though um, it sometimes annoys me when I'm watching my favourite band and I realise that there's a lot of people in the crowd who don't really know who this band is and they don't really care, they just want to get wasted and have a good time. At the same time, I understand that for the artist, it's often an opportunity to convert some of these people who've, who've never heard of them before to expose them to new audiences. And I'm absolutely sure that that's really- happening all the time. You can really see that with things like Triple J Unearthed, where they have competitions for those kind of really young bands to play at these big festivals. That would be a massive opportunity for them. You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. I'm Alex Spring with the Culture Team. We will have news and reviews from all the summer music festivals on our websites. Head over to theguardian.com and click on the culture section. we're going to talk about the rise of intellectual festivals in Australia. The Festival of Dangerous Ideas, the rise of TED Talks and particle physicist Brian Cox have all made being intelligent cool. But are we actually getting smarter or is this just another middle class pretension? But first, between Jean-Paul Gaultier at the NGV in Melbourne, 
the Fashion Icons exhibition at the Art Gallery in South Australia and Future Beauty at GOMA in Brisbane, it feels like fashion is taking over Australian art galleries. Anna, you're an artist. Can fashion really be considered art? Um, I I keep going, yes, no, yes, no, it is, it isn't, it is, it isn't. Um, but I think, I think there's kind of two avenues that I think about this in, and one is fashion as in the clothing that we wear every day, as in commercial mass-produced items of clothing, and then fashion as like the kind of work that these fashion designers make that we've been seeing in these exhibitions. And I think um, in the art galleries, I think the fashion that we see in there, I think it does have a place in the art gallery and it can be considered art. Um, but I think they start at very different points and kind of come together until they meet and cross over. And I think that space is quite blurry still. What What does define art, do you think? Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah, that's right. um, what is art, Anna? <laughs> Can you just do that in like five seconds? It's a 101 yeah. on what art is. <laughs> In terms of fashion, I think I think fashion that can be considered art is not fashion that you'd wear. Yeah, on. I guess that's a good description. Yeah. Well, I actually did go to the Jean-Paul Gaultier one in at the National Gallery of Victoria, and I went in pretty cynical because um, Jean-Paul Gaultier is obviously is a, he's a man and he's a designer, but he's also a company. He's a brand, so you know, I would I would definitely have objections if. If McDonald's decide to have an exhibition in the National Gallery of Victoria, you know, I mean, really, you sort of equated him to being a brand. Well, he's a brand. He is a brand, right? Yeah, he is a brand, absolutely. But I mean, he's he's you know informed by his own ethos. He set out initially as a designer, working in different uh, fashion houses, and he's I mean, he's got a point of view, and I think that's a bit different to being a brand as in a brand. He's a corporation. It's a corporation, right? A, a clothing brand, a company. It's a it's a clothing brand. Yeah, I would. It would actually be owned by one of the large corporates, but right. he would be at the helm of it. It's a label. It's a label. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah, but you know, I mean, so it is still a corporate entity, basically. And you know, to have a corporate entity, basically, uh, you know, an exhibition dedicated to a corporate entity in one of our state funded you know, galleries, I went in there kind of a little bit kind of cynical about that, right? Um, But then, like, actually seeing the exhibition and realising that there is a big difference between the things they sell commercially to the, how do you say it? Haute couture. See, former (laughs) former Vogue staff member knows how to pronounce that word. Um, You know, I I realised that there's, that's two different worlds, so... But we're not just talking yeah. about him as a kind of business, are we? Like he's got his own particular, um, you know, style, his own particular way of relating his art, his clothing to the bodies on which he displays it. It's almost like their clothing as an artistic work is meant to make the body underneath it disappear. You know, it's just pure ornamentation. It doesn't kind of bring out the natural features. It's about kind of layering on more and more elements, creating something fantastic. And I mean, even if you go back to his, um, you know, the costumes that he did and things like the fifth element and stuff like that, you know, it's about, you know, using the body almost as a canvas for just doing weird stuff. And um, I don't know, I, I look at that and then I look at, you know, stuff that are actual companies, you know, companies like, for argument's sake, American Apparel, which, you know, takes this quite artistic approach to its, even just its retail photography, its advertising, all that kind of thing. 
and they have the exact opposite ethos, which is basics that are functional, that draw out the kind of existing lines and existing shapes of the human body and are affordable, rah, rah, rah. So I think, you know, to me, someone like Gautier is just rarefied nonsense, but then again, I'm like an ill-educated colonial. Um, and and I think that the kind of like fashion, utility fashion is now getting better and better and is more interesting and is also functional. So I don't know. I think, you know, like I think there's a point to be made about just because it's a company, just because it's a brand, okay, sure. But what other brands and what other companies are actually doing it well in an interesting way? And I just look at high fashion. I just think this is obscurantist nonsense most of the time. Well, but that's confused. what art is. <laughs> <laughs> obscurantist. But is it? I mean, like, surely art also has to be popular in some sense, right? Like, And I don't mean that as in a trend. I mean that as in belonging to the people, you know, or has some kind of reference point back to what people can actually relate to and consume and all that kind of stuff. Yes, that's true. But I think the art that's popular in the art world is different from the art that's popular outside of the art world. Sure. Uh, but I mean, then, you know, I won't slander Gautier, but people like Galliano and stuff, you know, mm. they become so rarefied that they get to entertain, entertain all kinds of weird ideas like anti-Semitism for argument's sake. And you get these, you know, these kinds of um, really gauche, you know, figures at the top of the chain. So I like the fact that a lot of fashion in its artistic aspirations, still touches on, you know, what ordinary people want to wear. And that's that's where I think it becomes interesting to me, how they kind of interact with ordinary punters. Are you saying that American Apparel should have should be able to have an exhibition in the NGV then? Well, they don't need to have an exhibition in the NGV because they have stores everywhere. So they can, you know, and if, even if you look at other brands that have their own aesthetic, every single store is like a kind of art exhibition, you know, a little lounge room, you know, all these it's little tableaus. It's getting t- very tablos. postmodern now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to mention, I, I mean, it, I think it depends on the brand that you're talking about as well. And I understand what you're saying about it being a brand and having... Uh, underlying, you know, industrial... Uh, they are industries. They are actually meant to sell clothes. That's actually... When I spoke to Pamela Goldman, who is the, who's the a curator at Les Arts Décoratives in Paris, she said, absolutely, fashion is not art. It is designed in order to be sold. And the people who do really well in fashion, people like Valentino, people like um, Oscar de la Ronta, Giorgio Armani, they do well because they're actually designing clothes that will sell... To, and if you have a look, they don't push the boundaries that far. But someone like Galliano, um, you bring you bring up Galliano, he's creating cr- crazy fantastical ideas and colours and textures, which will then go on to influence hmm. a company like American Apparel. So if anything, they are right on the edge of creating art, creating the new direction and will change. But yeah, ultimately, they, they're there to sell clothes every season. I mean, maybe you could explain, because I... When I think about an artist and your motivations for art, shouldn't really be about selling a product or your your artist product, even though that might happen, right? Like, it's your motivation should be to say something about the world, to explore different ideas, to you should be motivated by your own sense of aesthetic and beauty, what have you. Um, are there artists who do wearable art that are not considered fashion designers? Yeah. Right. Um, so Nick Cave, um, Nick Cave, obviously not the musician. Um, he's an American artist. Um, he makes these wearable sound suits, and they're they're pretty amazing to look at. They're kind of made out of all these items that he's collected from antique shops and flea markets, and he's made them all into these crazy body suits that make noise as people walk in them. And his work um, began as a kind of in reference to protest, because he was thinking, how can how can we make more noise out of what we wear? Um, there's also a lot of wearable art being made in media art at the moment. Um, so things with 
digital, like coded clothing, smart clothing, where people weave sensors into the fabric that people wear and then they can react to the data that they collect, like heat sensors, sound sensors and everything like that. Um, And bioart, there's an artist called Donna Franklin and she's made some some clothing that's like acts as a second skin and it actually grows as you wear it, which is pretty cool. She made one out of um, fungi and one out of fermented bacteria, which looks and smells like red wine. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm becoming more, coming more and more around to the fact that, yes, fashion is an art and it should be in museums. <laughs> because I also think there's an incredible craftsmanship that's involved with fashion. If we're going back to talking about Valentino, for example, if anybody saw that exhibition at Goma, the incredible amount of work that's involved, particularly with Couture and the Petit Ma, who the, the, the craftsmen who have done it for generations and generations, intricate embroidery, um, beadwork, all that. You, you never get to see that really on a red carpet, or you, but the only time you actually can see that is in a museum. So maybe it should be in a museum. I mean, I think, but it's, you know, museum versus gallery, they're two different things. So, you know, I think design and social artifacts, they belong in museums because they make a commentary on society and history and where we are. But art is arguably not the same thing as craft so yeah so I mean uh, that's that's the only reason why I came into this exhibition feeling some of that kind of does this really belong in a in an art gallery but um yeah I mean walking through all his amazing creations and it, it does it takes his it looks at his relationship with figures like Madonna and his ideas of gender and gender deconstruction um it really did look at some of the the concepts and the the, the ideas that underpin his work. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I'm being, I'm going to be a bit cynical too, but obviously these big names are the things that attract audiences as well, because obviously the Valentino exhibition was an enormous success and drove heaps of people into that um, into that gallery. So maybe that is uh, an argument for bringing these big names into the art gallery. There is. Do you think fashion is more accessible than art to the general public? Do you think that's why they're so popular? Yeah, I think people are more fascinated by it. It's the celebrity factor as well, I think. And I guess maybe for a lot of people who aren't that familiar with, you know, modern art, abstract art, to see it adorning a kind of human figure at least provides them a kind of grammar where they can start to understand it or access it or, you know, oh, okay, this is a person wearing clothing, great. Okay, now now I can enter into this art world that maybe I'm unfamiliar with. That's definitely, I guess, part of the appeal to me if I go and see those exhibitions. As opposed to a Rothko painting where they're like, oh, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you can only spare so much of your day staring at canvases on walls, whereas, you know, maybe you want to go and stare at human beings instead. I don't know. Do you agree? Is fashion art or is it entirely utilitarian, a way of covering your body, as Adam suggests? Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture. You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. I'm Alex Spring here with the Culture Team. Later in the show, there's no escaping it. Christmas and the summer holidays are coming, but there are plenty of things to do that don't involve tinsel or tears. Stick around for our recommendations for December. Tears? There's always tears at Christmas time. You don't cry at Christmas? <laughs> I just leave the crying up to my drunk uncle, so it's always good. <laughs> So 
So when modern-day philosopher Alain de Botton opened the School of Life in Melbourne, which is the modern school that deals with everyday problems, he said there couldn't be a better country in which to open up, Australians being exceptionally intellectually curious and adventurous. I was quite surprised by this statement because it runs completely counter to the 60s, 70s idea of Australia being full of bogans. But yet there are a lot of ideas festivals like Festival of Dangerous Ideas and the Wheeler Centre that would say, yes, we are getting smarter, we're more engaged. There is a rising appetite for ideas in Australia. So I asked Anne Mossop from Sydney's Festival of Dangerous Ideas if this was in fact a global trend. She had some really interesting thoughts to why this was happening. Institutions like universities are not the place for public discussion and debate that perhaps they might have been in the past. The trend of increased specialisation means that people and their research are about smaller and smaller parts of things. So that the idea that you could have an educated and eloquent person come out and talk to you about something that had happened in the news, it's less likely to happen. And the other thing is the change in the media landscape. It's not like, oh, I will go to the newspaper of record and see what their erudite opinion writers tell me about this issue. But it's, it's been left to people a lot more to find their own answers to a whole lot of questions. And what they've decided is that they do want to engage with those ideas that will give them answers to the kind of questions that come up in their lives. They want to do it live. Sure, lots of people will watch things online, but you will still get a whole theatre full who want to come with their friends. They want to have the discussion immediately afterwards. So it's an experience that they're signing up for. It's a whole life experience. It's not just transfer this piece of information into my brain. Anne has some really interesting things to say about the people who go to, to festivals. There's sort of a traditional audience, which is the over 45 with lots of disposable income. And then there's this growing audience, which is the 18 to 30-year-olds who are inner city dwelling uh, students or um, entry-level workers. Uh, funnily enough, the jackpot audience, what she called the jackpot audience, were the under-18s, and they've only ever had those under-18s once when they had Tevi Givenson at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas um, because those under-18s never go to those cultural events. They're very hard to actually attract, which I thought was kind of interesting. But people do want to go, even though you can see all of these, you can see TED Talks, you can see all of the streaming from Fodi, from various different ideas festivals, people want to go and have that experience. And then they want to have the debate afterwards and discuss the ideas, which I thought was was really interesting. The other interesting thing that Anna had to say about the people who speak at these ideas festivals was as much as people love the big names, international people, they also really like local heroes as well people like Jane Caro and Julian Burnside, Michael Kirby, they can talk about pretty much anything and people will go, which I thought was really kind of interesting. So, Adam, you were sort of frowning during Anne's conversation. Tell me, tell me, what do you think? Do you think people are more engaged with ideas? Oh, I just thought some of her remarks I thought were quite interesting. I mean, as you say, you know, if the jackpot audience is young people and she's also worried about increasing specialisation in universities, then aren't we talking about the same phenomenon here? You know, like if the university is no longer... Um, a forum for public debate in the way that she, I think, assumes it once was. And I don't think it was ever really meant to be a kind of platform or a, or a centre for broad-based public engagement. You know, it's an ed- educational institute, not a not an auditorium. Um, you know, I think we need to ask ourselves why that, why that process is occurring. And really, we're talking about specialisation kind of across society more broadly. You know, like I've, I've been to a lot of these kinds of festivals and I find myself kind of observing two trends. 
Um, one of them is people's reticence to kind of be lectured to. You know, like they don't really necessarily want to go along and listen to an august expert explain to them an idea. Um, people want a, a level of engagement with something that, you know, that they can play with. Like they want to enjoy engaging with an idea, not so much be trained in it. Um, and I think that influences the second trend, which is that people want to be able to participate. You know, they want to take away some um, kind of handy bits and pieces. They want to be able to talk about it with their friends or their colleagues, as Anne said. Does that mean that um, people are becoming more educated? And does that mean that, you know, society is becoming more fragmented? Well, I think it just speaks to a kind of 21st century privileging of the idea that your own personal experience and your own personal engagement with an idea is really what matters. And so the ability of people to think through and work through an idea is, of course, going to be more important and more interesting to people who think that the way that they engage is more interesting, you know? I mean, it's tailored for you. If mm. you're there paying the money, then it's for you. And so it is all about what's relevant to you and to modern audiences as opposed to being this mystical yeah, idea. Yeah, pe- people want the... the I guess it was like what we were talking about before with music festivals. You know, if you're paying $150 to go to the big day out for two hours of fun, you want to have fun for two hours, you know. And so people like Alain de Botton are producing philosophy that, and, and broadening that out into events in the public sphere that are targeted for an individual. So we're going to teach you philosophy about how to exercise, about how to eat, about how to move, you know, where to live, how to think about these things, how to love. So, yeah. Mm. Actually, it was funny enough that Anne said the most popular events at last year's Fody was that, first of all, the narcissism um, <laughs> event. It was so popular, it sold out, and they had to put a second session on, and Ant-Man did two sessions, which I thought was kind of interesting, yeah. <laughs> because so many people are obsessed with narcissism. I'm pretty sure nobody in, because I went to Ant-Man's um, talk at Fody, and I just found everyone was really smug, like everyone was kind of laughing at all these, you know, Kim Kardashians of the world, all these narcissists, and, and no one is going to walk out of there going... I'm a narcissist, that's me, you know, no one's going to put their hand up and say I'm a narcissist. Um, I also think it's like a word that's, you know, incredibly overused these days, but anyway, that's my personal gripe. Well, funnily enough, the other hot ticket was the price of modern life is loneliness and depression. That was the other hot ticket at Bodhi. Right, and they're connected. You reckon? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) They should have done a deal for both of them. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it weird that this is now kind of entertainment? You know, like, you know what I'm going to do? Spend my weekend learning about narcissism and depression. That's going to be fantastic. And meanwhile, we're here, like, whinging about music festivals. Like, they're gone. But, you know. (laughs) Well, that's it. Why are they so attractive? Why do people spend money on it? Um, Look, I really think that, um, like, a lot of it is people's attempts to anchor themselves down to, you know, some thinker or some body of work or some trend to kind of give themselves a bit of constancy to kind of explain the, you know, way they relate to a world that is kind of fragmenting, all that kind of thing. And, you know, you've got a lot of smart people who come out of universities incredibly well-educated, but nonetheless feel quite isolated. So, of course, you get attached to, you know, that kind of thing or, I think, attracted to it. Mm. And even better if it's entertaining, you know, if it's packaged up well. And even better if it also makes you feel good. And that's where Debaton and this whole school of life thing comes in. It's therapeutic as well. It's Mm. kind of like a mixture between, um, you know, like your yoga class and your therapist in one, but it's for your brain. <laughs> um, you're, I, I feel like you're quite an intellectual guy, Adam. Um, would you, do you go to these, like, outside of, you know, work reasons? Um, not, I mean, not really. Like, uh, but they're not really for me, I think, because um, 
you get paid. You get paid to. I don't know how I. I don't know how I can explain this without sounding like a like a complete idiot. But it's like <laughs> my the answer is I go to church instead. I'm religious, so um, the yeah the reason that I don't go largely is because I do think a lot of the time it starts to resemble a bit of a kind of cult of intellectualism rather than a, um, a kind of school, you know, the school of life. And Alain de Botton wrote this book called Religion for Atheists, which I've read, where he actually promotes this kind of public collegiate style of learning um, in a number of formal and informal arrangements, you know, like from restaurants where you go along and you have like a prescribed reading and discussion list to sit down with your dining you know comrades and talk about philosophy and then you have a lecture all the way to temples of reason which he wants to build which is like a throwback to you know old rationalist philosophy from france you know compton all that kind of stuff to say we'll build this big temple where you go and hear like public lectures you know and then you get to the this kind of atheist church movement that started up as well which i've written about for communist free i think a lot of the time it's a substitute for um for the ritual that you get with religion and the kinds of lectures that you get are a substitute for the kinds of, you know, for argument's sake, from Holy Scripture or whatever. And but, so, and, and it is, but that's a deliberate thing that they're doing, right? Like, they are basically saying, we miss those aspects of religion, but we don't believe in God. I think, yeah, I think there's an element of that to it. I'm not that interested in it, partly because I think I get that from another part of my life, you know. Right. And I mean, I wonder if I get it from other parts of my life, because I definitely feel sometimes kind of a spiritual or intellectual hunger that isn't being met, um, you know, in my life at times and a sense of community or these things. But I'm very, I mean, I, I think I'm just a jaded person in general. Like I, I am cynical to this idea of signing up to something like this, to this, you know, paying money and signing up to a club with like a strong brand name with a social media page, mm, all of yeah. that, you know, there's something about it that feels hollow to me when, when it's structured like that. I don't know. I don't know what, am I being stupid? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, quite, I do, I have to say, I do quite like those festivals because I think on the daily grind and uh, you, you don't get to talk about those things often enough. And I end up talking about quite mundane things sometimes where I don't, I'd love to have a, a salon where we spoke about big ideas all the time, but most of the time, you know, we're talking about men or sex or something like that with my friends. I'm not having debates about existentialism. So I do like introducing those um, elements into my life at different times. And something like All About Women, for example, when they had, um, or the the, um, predecessor to that, which was the F word, when they spoke about, uh, when they had Jermaine Greer and Naomi Wolf, and then they had the two of them debating. I found that quite interesting, quite fascinating. And you don't have that on a daily basis. Yeah, that's definitely when it's at its best, I think. And at FODI this year, they had a couple of really good, really provocative foreign speakers who came out. Um, one woman who easily had the most quote-unquote dangerous talk of the entire festival was this one called Kaiser Eckes Ekman, who came out and she was talking about surrogacy, you know, which is a really topical issue with the whole baby gammy story. Um, and, you know, she was, she comes from, I think, Sweden and she's, you know, a feminist in the Nordic model. So anti-sex work, also um, anti-surrogacy and basically came out and laid the case for it and just, you know, was like, bring it on. Do you know what I mean? And the audience was going, uh, people were really quite aggressive and she was just taking them on. And it was fantastic, that kind of thing. Like, this is fantastic. You know, the really interesting thing about that is after the festival, I went to the reception and she was standing there on her own. No one was speaking to her. And um, 
despite giving the most provocative and most dangerous talk of the entire thing. And I felt really bad for her. You think despite of or because she did? Well, probably both, you know, like, um, and I think, you know, if we can come back to the original point, you know, are Australians, um, as Alain de Botton said, intellectually curious? I think, yes, within certain bounds, you know. And that like any kind of discourse or any intellectual scene, there'll always be certain limits that you don't cross. And evidently, I think she trod on a few too many taboos. And so, you know, it's that kind of thing too that I think once you have a big structured, um, quote unquote, kind of intellectual um, regime of festivals, you know, coming up, you know, writers' festivals and this kind of thing, you do really run the risk of them becoming clubbish. And you get, and that's the outcome, you know, sometimes is people who are legitimately provocative and not in an unintellectual sense. You know, she's basically a professional Marxist. Um, end up getting cut out. For more information on the festivals we are speaking about, to share or comment on this episode, head to our Facebook page, Guardian Australia Culture, or send us a tweet at GDN Oz Culture. Maybe you like these ideas festivals more than Adam. My name is Alex Spring, and you're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. And now it's time for our regular segment, what we're looking forward to next month. We're looking at December, and every year I pile up the number of things that I want to see and do and read over the summer holidays, but I just I never get to any of them. But there's some I'm going to make time for. So my pick this month is going to be the Paddington Bear movie, which I'm super excited about. It's live action, and it's got Hugh Bonneville and Nicole Kidman in it as a nasty taxidermist, and it's got Ben Whishaw as the voice of everyone's favourite polite Peruvian bear. And uh, I love Paddington. I used to read Paddington Bear books when I was a kid. I used to watch the TV show. It really reminds me of all my happy childhood days, and it's kind of good schmaltz. So I'm really looking forward to that this year. Adam, what are you looking forward to in December? Um, This year, I'm on a bit of a crusade to read as much Australian fiction as possible, because I think in this country, we tend to avoid books written by our own authors. So I'm going to be reading among other things, Paul Daly's new novel. Paul Daly's a contributor to Common is Free. He writes a column called Postcolonial, which is excellent. A lot of Australian history, Indigenous affairs, that kind of thing. He actually won an award for it, and his new novel is called Challenge. Uh, it should be pretty good, I reckon. It's about a three-day political shitstorm um, in Canberra. It's set in Canberra, and it's basically, as far as I can tell from the blurb, a kind of revisiting of the Rudd-Gillard leadership battles. So I think it should be good fun. It should be good summer reading, especially when Parliament's no longer sitting. And if you're a political tragic like me, you want to revisit those heady days, you know, (laughs) passing legislation. So (laughs) that should be pretty good. I'm looking forward to that one. So that's fiction? It's fiction. Yeah, I know. Well, who would have thought, you know, it's almost like Parliament seems like it's mainly fiction at the moment anyway. So (laughs) definitely coming out of Abbott's mouth. Can I just say as someone who's allergic to politics, that book sounds like uh, no, I don't no, sledge my contributors I, no, on air. Exactly. No, I mean he contributes to us too, and he's a fantastic we writer. Love so, exactly. <laughs> love you. Um, but <laughs> I've actually got his um, his earlier book, Collingwood: A Love Story, which I think uh, I haven't read yet, but it was quite popular too. The cover looked quite good, did it? <laughs> Monica, what are you looking forward to in December? Well, I'm somewhat looking forward to a visit from our very big boss, um, Alan Rusbridger. Uh, obviously, I'm super looking forward to his lecture. I think it's going to be really interesting. He, of course, as the editor-in-chief of Guardian Global, was the man who um, he was behind a lot of some of the big stories, um, Snowden, NSA. He played a big part in, in all those um, 
stories. But I'm also nervous because he's our big boss and it'll be my first time meeting him. So it's mixed feelings. <laughs> uh, but I think the lecture will be fantastic. And that's on at Sydney's Carriage Works on the 9th of December. It's called Liberty and Safety, We're Now for Freedom. And I believe there are still tickets available. So Anna, what are you, what are you looking forward to in December? I've got two things. I just thought of a second one just then. Um, the first one is Nick Cave tour. He's touring all around Australia. I saw him a few years ago with which Nick, Nick Cave is it? Uh, this Nick time? Cave, the musician this <laughs> right. time. <laughs> um, so, but this time he's playing solo shows. Um, so I think that's just going to be really good because he's one of my favourite musicians. Um, the other thing is James Terrell, who's got a big re- retrospective in Canberra. So he's an American artist who works with light installations. And this show um, was actually on last year when I was in LA and it wasn't open on the one day that I had free. So I was really upset then and now it's coming to Canberra, which is awesome. So that's on at the National Gallery of Australia. That sounds great. So that's it for this month. Thank you for joining us. If you head along to theguardian.com and click on culture, you'll find a list of everything we've talked about today with links to more information. We'd also love to chat to you on our Facebook page, which is Guardian Australia Culture, or on Twitter at GDN Oz Culture. And Nancy will be back next month. But for now, thank you, Monica. Thank you, Anna. And thank you for joining us, Adam. No worries. Thank you also to Caitlin Gibson, who is filling in for our absent producer, Miles. He's in Japan, lucky thing. And also a big thank you to our technical wizard, Jason. We'll see you next month back here on the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.